0: Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. And joining me is somebody who has pivoted so freaking much. He pivoted so freaking much that my notes were outdated and I corrected them. And this was not like an interview we booked years ago. It's just months ago. And uh, I told him how I plan to introduce his company. And even that changed from like what I researched just a little while ago. I admire so much how he's been able to adjust and pivot and keep growing his business. And today he's got a success. Shane Kowalski is the founder. Did I pronounce it right? I just saw you do something. No, that was right. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. We're talking about how people mispronounce last names when they're a little bit different. Um, He is the founder of Glue it is end to end employee engagement and connection platform for distributed teams i don't freaking know what that even means i should know that i've done research we're going to ask i'm going to ask you about that but I, i'm amazed that you started out with dating then because people couldn't go out you did it online then you went to corporate get togethers to build teams and connection and now you've got something different I want to find out the whole thing. I want to see how you figured it out. I want to know how well you are doing right now. I want to ask you about how you created what, in your name, in your words, was shitty websites for law firms and bakeries early on in your (laughs) career and so much more. And we could do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, if you're hiring developers. Go to the guy that Shane and I both like, Alexander. He is the guy behind lemon.io. If you go to lemon.io slash they'll give you a discount and help you hire phenomenal developers. The second, if you're curious about how to organize a company in a new way, I'm going to tell you about a podcast I created with uh, Origami. It's a joinorigami.com slash podcast. Shane, what is the thing today? What does it mean? End-to-end employee engagement.
1: Uh, so, end employee engagement. Employee engagement is the category of uh, HR tech that's basically just how do employees feel and how are they connected to their coworkers? Uh, especially for distributed teams, it's you know gone from what was a you know silent killer problem. There were a few people that were disengaged, but generally people felt good in the office. To now, pretty much everyone's disengaged in some way or another. Uh, so it's a question of like, how do you bring people together? How do you make sure they're feeling good about what they're working on, who they're working with, and build those connections? Um, so, for us, it's about giving you know, people leaders all the tools to understand how their people are feeling and who they're connected to, and then do something about it through things like virtual team events, uh, like you mentioned before, offsites and targeted one on ones. Think like uh, Donut, but if Donut didn't suck uh, and you actually had some awesome things to be able to bond, uh, bond over, we do a lot of stuff like matching people based on affinity. So, if you have you know, the two metal heads of the company, giving them a chance to meet and you know actually create That's... a real relationship over a shared interest. So...
0: It's not just these team-building events where a group of people in a company talk together. It could also be in-person meetups, and it could be, as I'm seeing on your website, help employees find their new BFF. Because if you find two people who like each other at the company, that's going to color their connection throughout and uh, the whole experience that they have at the company. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Totally. I keep hearing about how much you raise and what your valuation is. Uh, does this sound accurate? You raised $18.5 million last year at about a $100 million valuation.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
0: Here's the part that I'm more curious about. Like, What's the revenue at the business?
1: Yeah, we've gone through quite a few different variations of the business. So, uh, you know, like anybody that's gone through pivots, uh, it, you know, not everything is always up and to the right, as you might think. There's There's peaks and valleys through the time. Uh, you know, we've been as high as you know millions and tens of millions of dollars, uh, and then you know restructure and move back to you know more traditional SaaS revenue. So we're, we're in the mid single digits uh, era today. Millions. Yeah, millions. Yeah. yeah,
0: dude. And you were bootstrapped until that fundraise.
1: Uh, no, we had raised a couple rounds before. Uh, so we had, we had raised seed capital back in early 2019 at uh, a small amount, like the large big crazy rounds that that started happening in 2020 we were never part of those we scraped by on you know 750k million dollar rounds up until that one
0: the first version had to do with dating where did the idea come from and what was that first version
1: yeah yeah it's funny it gets uh, lumped into dating quite a bit but uh, the the idea was basically stitch fix for a night out Um, you know at that point uh, I, I had worked at two different marketplace companies, Porch and Convoy, two Seattle companies. Uh, and the basic insight I had leaving both those companies was that most marketplaces, post 2010-ish, had lost alignment with their uh, with their supply. Meaning, like they start with like this beautiful premise: it's like, oh my god, do you have a car? You can make money. It's amazing. We're going to digitize the modern restaurant, like you know, DoorDash, things like that. They start that way. Uh, But they end in what will be self-driving cars. They end in ghost kitchens. Uh, They end in a place where they need to capture more value effectively. Uh, And for me, uh, I grew up in small businesses. Both my folks ran small business. Both my uh, my grandparents did. Uh, And just kind of hated the idea that my favorite business model, being marketplaces, was destroying my favorite sector of the economy, being small business. Uh, And wanted to try and solve something there. So the original product was what we called Mystery. Uh, It was Mystery Night Out. Uh, it was basically, you come to our website, tell us what you like and don't like, uh, give us a budget. Uh, we wouldn't match you with somebody else, it was four couples, uh, but uh, then an Uber would come and pick you up. You'd have no idea where you were going until you arrived, uh, and we would plan, book and execute a date night out in the city where you wouldn't know where you were going until you got there. Uh, the magic behind that was, one, the experience design of it, being very thoughtful around not knowing where you're going to go before you arrive, uh, finding out a minute before it was actually a really, really phenomenal user experience. Um, But then on the other end, we got to load balance effectively across the supply base. Uh, So we got to solve a lot of really painful yield management problems for an industry that you know, frankly needs it. The hospitality industry is hilariously yield deficient. Um, And so it was a fun product. Uh, We did thousands and thousands of those date nights. That was actually going really, really well. We were out raising our Series A back in February of 2020. Uh, Yeah, go ahead.
0: How did you get so many people to sign up and do that?
1: Uh, you know, it started off just me doing it for a friend, uh, just as like a random idea. Like I'm literally on my Uber account, like changing the name to have him pick up and sending him texts as he goes along. And then I did it for another friend and another friend. And then I had friends of friends ask to do it. We set up a you know a waiting list and we had thousands of people who wanted to do it. And we never, never did any marketing for that business. It was just kind of growing by itself. A friend of itself. a friend? Yeah, it was all just kind of going from a friend to a friend. And it was an interesting enough type of thing to go in. It was something that was so easy to tell people about If as you went on that date mm-hmm. night. You know, it's like, oh, what'd you do this weekend? It's like, oh my God, let me tell you. I went on this mystery date night out. Like, I didn't know where I was going. They sent me to this. And then you always have a nice story to tell all the way through. Um yeah. It was a really fun business. Really, really fun What business. kind of things
0: did you send people to? I love this idea. As a married guy who has trouble coming up with fun date nights yeah, yeah, in yeah. a new city, I would love for somebody to do that. And every once in a while, someone comes up with an idea where they do this and it doesn't fully take off. I forget, there's a... A reality TV star who was doing it. I met him at a friend's dinner, and I forget who he was. I forget. I guess the yeah. dinner was kind of interesting. He, he you know, sent us out to see a, a movie someplace interesting, but we never did it yeah. again. How, what What are some of the events that you did?
1: Uh, I mean, it could be anything from you know great dinners to fencing classes to glass blowing to going out on the water to mm. you know a, a wide wide variety of different different experiences. We we found that. You know, in the beginning, we thought it was you know more like Stitch Fix from uh, what we need to build. Meaning, it was it was going to be a data science problem, and you'd have to get the perfect stop to the perfect person, and you know, collaborative filtering, and all this stuff. What we learned was that uh, experiences at a certain level of quality are a commodity. Meaning, you like a lot more than you think you do. Uh, the delta between what you think you like and what you actually like is, is quite large. Uh, and in fact, expectations—the idea that you you Think you, have it, you, you think you like it, you think you don't like it, are one of the biggest drivers for if you will actually enjoy that experience. Uh, and we know that because we tested it. We, we, so we did this test, we had this date that we called the, uh, the salsa and salsa date. It was like a, you'd go salsa dancing, and then you go to a Mexican restaurant and you make salsa. Like really cheesy. Uh, but it was a really fun date. And we had about 200 of these dates. And for 100, and all the 200 of these couples are you know, similar in some way. They, you know, the pre opt was like they liked Mexican food and they liked physical activity. For 100, we ran it like we always ran uh, mysteries, which is like you wouldn't know where you're going until you got there. So you'd arrive a minute before. Uh, the presentation had to be presented well. So it'd be like, could, like, get ready to get pushed out of your comfort zone. You're going to do something really fun, blah, blah, blah. You'd go and do that experience. So they did that, did that experience. For those 100 that ran it the traditional way, where you wouldn't know where you were going until you got there, uh, 90 rebooked within a month. So they, they had a really, really great time. They rebooked another mystery within a month. Uh, and 10 rated it very, very high. Only one, only one couple didn't like it. The other 100, we sent them an itinerary the week before. We said, hey, it's going to be salsa and salsa. And it like, looked nice. It was like well designed, you know, everything like that. Of that 100, 40 canceled, 30 hated it, had mm-hmm. a terrible time, uh, and the rest re- liked it and rebooked. The only variable that changed was your expectations going into it. Uh, and yeah, it the, that old sense. atom of happiness is expectations minus reality is very, very, very true.
0: All right. Tell me about why you pivoted from that.
1: Uh, Well, we were running that business. Like I mentioned, it was actually going pretty well. We had multiple city launches planned. uh, And then, uh, as you can imagine, a surprise date night out uh, product as in the early beginnings of a pandemic. Not exactly the best product line in the world. Uh, So, you know, that that kind of we went from, you know, a good business to an illegal one in a period of like three or four days up here in Seattle. Um, and, you know, at the time, this was back early pandemic. I, I don't think most folks remember, but it was like, ah, this is going to be like this one, two month thing. Like, no way this will be here by summer. And if it does come, it'll be like a second wave was like the big thing people talked about was like, oh, it'll we'll close down. We'll open back up. We'll close back down. Then we'll open back up and it'll all be fine again. Um, and, you know, for us, you know, we put, we worked with a lot of small businesses uh, in Seattle explicitly at the time. And we, we had just set up all these city launches. Uh, and so the original pivot was like, oh, this is a couple-month thing. How do we make sure that we're still growing and supporting the businesses that we work with? So we launched what we called Mystery Night In, which is the same value prop uh, you know, to, to people like yourself. Instead of a date night out, you didn't have to plan. It was a date night in you didn't have to plan. Uh, it was you know, a hot meal, local goods, delivered to your doorstep. And we did uh we did thousands and thousands of those over the next couple months. There's some horror stories about running a D2C subscription box business, of which I will never ever launch in my entire life ever again. Um but we we were able to save a few uh, uh more than a few local businesses. We were able to, you know, make people a little bit happier in the you know, the darkest times of the pandemic. Uh but yeah, you know, summer came around uh and COVID wasn't going anywhere, we weren't going to go back to that night out business anytime in the next year and a half, especially when we're talking about, you know, a startup that has, you know, four or five months of runway. Um, and so we kind of went back to the drawing board. We said, you know, we do this night in thing is, you know, growing and it's a business, but it's a subscription DTC box business. It's not anything I ever intended on building or have any real, you know, deep-seated passion for. Um, and two, like it's not a venture-scale business and we're like the path to profitability on this is, is a long one So we kind of went back to the drawing board uh, said what are we really good at? What have we you know? What's something we've learned that you know We think is unique to us that we can bring to a market because we figured if we only have four months It's gonna be on some earned insight not something blanket blanket slate if we're gonna be able to save the company uh, and you know we landed on distributed work as the wave to build on you know, I think The surfing and startup analogy is probably overused, but it's a good one. The idea that, like, you know, you you need a big wave to build on, you need a surfboard funding the right team, and then you need to know how to surf. Well, we knew how to surf on a couple things, right? That was the earned insight. We were really, really good at experience design, understanding how to productize experience design, what it means to scale a really quality experience. Um, And when we were looking at where and how we can apply that type of learning, Uh, You know, we found distributed work. We found all these people working from home And we found a lot of people who were just isolated uh, and we found a lot of people had moved Uh, and because a lot of people had moved We thought wow remote works probably not going anywhere for a very long time (laughs) You know employers are gonna have to full sweep you know, fire all of their employees and hire brand new employees or they're gonna have to force everyone to move which feels unlikely uh, and so he said, this distributed work thing, isolation, feeling lonely, not being connected to your coworkers, we think that'll stick around for a very long time. Uh, and hey, we're pretty good at experiences. Uh, and man, the current experiences that they're doing for remote teams suck. <laughs> they're really, really bad. Uh, and so we you know, spent our time, uh, you know, we kind of converted our night in business that we had into a B2B line that we called corporate, uh, that was corporate gifting, think morale boxes, swag boxes, things like that. Uh, and then we went out and tried to create a virtual event product that we thought was actually enjoyable. We took a lot of our learnings about what, what it takes to build up you know, really, really quality experiences from a first principles approach into the virtual team event space um, you know, and, and tried to not just shove IRL events into a Zoom box like wine tasting and all the other events that I'm sure everyone listening to this has done at one point or another and thought, that was okay. So we did that. We did both those things. Um, that business took off right from the very beginning. We had you know close to three hundred thousand dollars in bookings in the first month alone, um, and you know from there it's kind of been a three-step journey in in this category. Um, and uh, you know to make it simple, I'll put it in really simple words. You know in the beginning it was like, okay, these things are terrible. How do we make sure these things are actually enjoyable? The metric we looked at was like employees that are excited to join the next event. Um, and it was basically like the make it good phase. We spent a decent amount of time there, and, and we left there. And now, close to 95% of people that join events are excited for the next event. Back then, it was only 20. Uh, so that was phase one. Phase two of this business was, OK, they're good. But man, these things are really a pain in the ass to book, plan, and execute. Uh, the, average, we, the problem statement we had was from one of our bigger customers, Amazon, at the time. Um, and they had like 6,300 EAs. Each one of those EAs was spending five days a month planning, booking, and executing morale spend of any kind. Uh, and they'd go through all this effort, and on average, 40% of the people would show up. Because, uh, you know, you got to figure out where people live and where the, where the boxes go. And, oh, what you send a Slack poll that's like, what time works? And everyone emojis a different time. You're like, well, that's not actually that helpful. You go through all this effort, and you find a vendor who hopefully gets on the video platform you want. And then you get in the event that's like just a bad event, generally speaking, if you're actually planning it as, as one of these EAs spend much time making it easy, effectively, uh, attendance being the big thing that we focused on. Uh, In the beginning, it was 40%. Now, it's all the way up to 85%. And the last piece, and this is where, you know, we've spent the majority of the business since, was, okay, these things are good. These things are easy to book. Are they working? You know, and we looked at all the product metrics that, you know, a a typical product startup or a, a startup would. We looked at, you know, NPS and CSAT and Raul's product market fit score and, And you looked at all those things, everything actually looked really good. You know, we had a 65% would be very disappointed if we left. We had close to a 90 NPS on on the organizers and employees doing it. CSAT retransaction, everything else looked good. Uh, But the only thing that wasn't looking good was, did this actually have an impact from a company perspective? Did this actually have ROI that we could bring to the table? And for companies, that's in employee engagement. Uh, And ultimately, retention and productivity. Like, are the events that I'm doing, do they actually move employee engagement metrics? And how do those employee engagement metrics tie to my retention of those employees? And what we found after doing thousands of these things, and we sent thousands and tens of thousands of these corporate gifts out of warehouses and everything, it was paying to run that business. Uh, What we found was for the corporate gifting product, we actually found an inverse correlation between anyone receiving (laughs) these boxes and any employee engagement (laughs) metric you can imagine, Sense of appreciation, sense of belonging, appreciation for manager. Turns out a T-shirt doesn't make you feel better about your boss. Was a hard-earned lesson for for us to learn. Um, And then on the virtual event side, we found only about 10% actually had an impact. Um, And and what that meant for us is that we were building a, a business that was generating good revenue, a business that had good growth potential, but ultimately would die because it didn't have an ROI. And we thought you know, boom times are a way to build business, but when the bus times comes, anything that doesn't, can't defend its value is going to go to zero. So starting in you know, March of 2021, we really, we focused almost the entire business on trying to understand how do we understand how to make these things impactful. And that's led us down building a, a basically an entirely new platform. Uh, and we still do the virtual events. R- virtual events are still a big part of our business. But now we, we started building a platform that could understand the people problems at the company in the first place. What connections do matter? Who should every employee be connected to? How do you understand that? And we, we look at data from calendar data to Slack data to survey data to Spotify data. If somebody connects their account for a Spotify game, you have to uh, you know, guess who on the team is the you know, number one Taylor Swift fan. But now we know your music interests. They're so in connection to the other people that have music interests like you. Starting to understand you know, who, what are the connections look like and then how do you actually build, you know, a system for a company across all the things that they're going to do to actually make sure that what they're doing is working. We were able to boost the ROI of our virtual events, you know, from back then really really poor, just matching the right content, you know, making sure that if you're going to do going to spend money, you're going to spend money on content that people can actually find out that they have. Similarity with each other. They can actually build connections. Don't send engineers to a wine tasting class Maybe send engineers to a Dungeons and Dragons event where they can actually bond over a shared interest as an example uh, Through it you know at the right time There's a big difference between forced fun and you know I feel isolated and disconnected and finding that right mix is pretty tough um, And then with the right people uh, I think you mentioned finding your best friend is, is core to what we what we think of as a job to be done for for glue and uh, we've spent a bunch of time trying to understand all those things. As we built out that software platform, that's become the business. Uh, that's become the thing that every people leader comes to us wanting to understand better. And how do you actually take action automatically? Um, sorry, long explanation to your question, but, but I figured it was uh, the full pivot story all the way through.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. What I'm hearing you say, though, is that what you did wasn't working even though pe- even though your customers thought it was, right? Like your customers seem to have thought that sending a t-shirt to their team member or another gift was working. How did how yeah. did you know that that wasn't worth doubling down on and finding a better version of a t-shirt? How did you even know if your customers were saying, first of all, do I have that right? That your customers seem to think yeah. that, that was
1: okay? No, yeah. I mean, I think it's a question of like, how do you define working? Um, you know, customers... Billions and billions and billions of dollars are spent on gift cards every year. They don't work, but people still buy them. And they still still say
0: they do work. You were saying your NPS scores were high. Your product market fit, according to Raul's thing, was good. So how did you know it wasn't working if all the data was coming back and saying this is good?
1: Yeah, at the end of the day, we were trying to understand real value creation.
0: By talking to customers, and then you see that that their people don't like it?
1: Yes. Sometimes, you know, we, we have a value a mystery that we call ingrained empathy. Sometimes you need and, and you know, I, I look at even some of the companies I've worked at and some of these companies that, you know, blow up and eventually implode. At the end of the day, the companies that achieve the greatest outcomes are hyper focused on value creation, not just the right metric, not just customers loving their product, but you actually need to drive real differentiated value in the long run. So and what when does that mean for business, you?
0: At we keep calling it mystery. It's now the new name is glue. What glue, does that yeah. mean for glue? Though that, when you say value creation,
1: totally. So so you know value creation can be you know an employee feels happier for an hour after an event. You know we look at the majority of offsites as a good example. Ninety percent of offsites have almost no impact. Uh, and what does that mean? What do I what do I mean by no impact? Well, people show up to an offsite. And, you know, you feel really good after that offsite for a week and a half. Actually, it's two and a half weeks on average. And you see these amazing interaction bumps. But what was the point of the offsite? Why did you do the offsite in the first place? Well, you did the offsite because you're a distributed team and people feel a little isolated, disconnected from the mission. They haven't built cross-team cohesion is one of the bigger reasons people do offsites. Okay, like how do you measure and understand like the impact of that offsite on those things? And not just I had fun, not just it was a good time. Well, you can start understanding, hey, pre and post, what do cross-team interactions look like? Are they higher? Are they lower? What is the sentiment of your employees towards the other teams? You know, Oftentimes, you, you have these big problems between sales teams and operations teams, as an example. Have you built more trust on those teams afterwards? Well, you can measure these things. You can, you can actually see the impact and draw causal impact across this event, this tactic, this strategy, and say, is this working? Is this not? And the reality is even though employees loved our virtual events back in the day they weren't working you'd go and you'd have fun and the next day you'd forget about it a good virtual event go ahead Mm -hmm. yeah
0: you know what i i know what you mean i've watched my wife go through virtual events virtual cooking classes virtual wine tasting the package gets delivered it is exciting the whole family gets to see it. people want to know what it's about then she does the thing with her team I do feel that there's value in it, but I also see what you mean that there's also a little bit of emptiness. And I especially feel that when you say getting a gift. It's it's rarely the right thing. For some reason people think that tea is a really special thing. Well, I drink tea, she doesn't drink tea. If if you don't drink yeah. tea, it's a waste. Um so I I hear what you're saying. I guess what I'm trying to understand and extrapolate from your story is how did you know that this wasn't that this wasn't valuable for the end user, if your NPS was right. And then, and then how do we then come up with something that's better than NPS that's more like value-based?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you need to start defining, you know, because certainly there, there are plenty of products that have blown up with great NPS and ended up dying. And the question is like, well, why did they end up dying? Well, like you can build something that's fun for a minute and NPS, I don't think it's a great Evaluation of a product in the first place. Neither is, are any of these specific metrics. I think the question for any business is to understand the root of how do you measure the value creation that you're bringing to market for your customer. And at the end of the day, for a business, if any business works with mystery, what is the, what is it works with Gluno? What, what, what is the goal uh, of that interaction? What do they want? If they spent, if they looked at, I spent $100, what is the outcome that they're looking for? Well, if you, Logically work your way through that tree. They want their employees to be productive and retentive. And if they're going to spend money on morale, it's to improve overall retention and improve the ability for these teams to connect and work well together. Well, the, goal, the ultimate goal for any company should be how do I understand and measure my impact towards those metrics? Obviously, that's hard. There's a lot of steps that, you know, for us, we have to go to connection first and understand connection units, and then we work. How does connection units impact towards retention and productivity? Uh, and yeah, we can get really, really advanced now. And all the stuff we can do now, we can, we can forecast retention. We can do all these y- unique and creative things. As we started digging and building kind of the product to build ROI, the product to, the, as, we under, as we started trying to figure out how do we build ROI for virtual events, we realized, man, we need to understand the connection graph at this company really well. Well, that's data that nobody had. Uh, and a large, large enterprise, like the biggest scale companies, have observability data. They're, they're looking at all this input from you know the tools we use every day, Slack teams, things like that. But now we look at all that data, and we can pick up on the you know the smallest of signals. You know, even something like an employee who used to accept calendar invites from their manager right when they got them, and now they're waiting until right before the meeting, and they're pressing accept right before. It's a feature in a model. It's a small signal of disengagement. We'll st- our system will start picking up on a lot of those small things and then actually take action, not just automatically, but proactively to say, oh, this person might be disconnected. We're going to make sure they do a meetup with the leader of their org and bond over something that they both have in common. Maybe it's the fact that they both love guitar. Because what we found at the end of the day is that connection and you know, sense of social safety and sense of an ability to build trust with somebody is, is usually a social construct. And secondly, like, that's how you build trust in the business. You know, if you start getting to know your leaders as people, and not just as you know, a leader talking head, you're going to have a little bit more empathy for them, you're going to have a little bit more trust in them, and you're going you're gonna to be a little bit more aligned to kind of what, where they're going. And at least if you're not, you're going to tell them. Uh, and, and that's uh, you know, how we view the job to be done of Glue, is to build that connection for folks.
0: All right. Let me take a moment to talk about my first sponsor. And then I want to come back to the early days and see if what you did there would work for somebody else who's listening to us. But first, my first sponsor is Lemon.io. What do you know about Alexander? Before we got started, you and I were talking about him.
1: Yeah, for whatever reason, we've just chatted on a couple random groups, whether it be you know Twitter or I think some uh, some Slack groups that we're both in. Uh, and he's just been building. He's been building in public for a while, as far as I know. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just think he, he's just a hustler. That guy's just building all the time. What I
0: admire is, like you said, he keeps talking about what his financial goals are for the business, and then he talks about how he gets there. And he's not reluctant to talk about his goofiness and how he's... Totally. Uh, how he's failing on his way there and also not too embarrassed to talk about his financial successes on the way there. And the reason that he's able to do all that is because lemon.io helps match businesses like the ones run by the people who are listening to us with uh, developers They've got a matchmaking system. They make sure that you're happy. And if you're not happy, then they'll they'll correct it and they'll get you somebody else who's good. I'm not suggesting that anyone who listened to me go and sign up and, and hire from them. I'm suggesting you include them in your mix. If you're looking for a developer right now or if you've got a project that needs a developer and it felt like it's just too expensive to do it, Give them a shot. In fact, if you use my URL, you'll not only get their phenomenal developers, which they screen, they pre-vet, they do everything, but you'll also get them at a lower price than others. It's always low, but it's going to be even lower. If you use my URL, all you have to do is go to lemon.io slash Mixergy, lemon.io slash Mixergy. So the thing that you did before, I'm wondering if it could still work. Let's come back just even to, to dates. Do you think that yeah. that... Date boxes sent to people would still work today. Can somebody mm. still do it?
1: Date boxes. I don't. I don't believe in that business. Really, really in too many ways. I, I think there's a couple. Uh, the economics just don't make sense at scale. You need a. You need a sufficient amount of. You know diversity in what you're going to go and do every single time you do one of these date boxes. You need a lot of variety. And like what you find with boxes is like probably if any one box matches to. of people. So if you want to acquire, you know, broad sweeping date night at home category, you need at least four different types of box to start. You need to refresh those boxes on a monthly basis. And you're talking about a skew in logistics nightmare in the background. And it's just a really, really hard thing to work. There's a couple examples that really, really work for this category. Um, The best business in this category is probably a, a company called To Hunt a Killer. It's actually like a date night detective box. So you you get like a, you have to solve a you know a murder mystery effectively every month, and it works because it's content, and it's something that that team can just reproduce and create new content for. It's at the end of the day, it's paper that they're sending you. It's, you know, it's a couple pictures. There's not a lot of physical good inventory that's involved, and that's a really really compelling and interesting business. That business is crazy. They they are way bigger than they than meets the eye, um, but. I think the at-home date night box category, subscription boxes in general, it's just a really, it's a hard one business to go after. And it's just, a, it's a tough market.
0: What about the in-person events that were doing so well before COVID? Do you think that that's one that could be copied?
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely think it could be. Uh, I think there's, you know, local marketplaces take, you know, not the faint of heart to go out and build for sure. Uh, but certainly, you know, especially with some of the, the newer improvements that are happening across, AI and plugins and all this stuff that's happening, just the ability to automate a lot of that tactical event planning. Um, certainly a real business opportunity there. Uh, certainly, you know, much easier than it was when we first did it uh, in, in, in the early days.
0: It doesn't seem like there's much margin, though. I mean, and it's expensive. You're talking about doing salsa classes. What are those run? Minimum 40 bucks, if not like closer to 75, be-
1: I guess. Yeah, I mean, so you'd be surprised that the backend economics of hospitality and experiences are, are pretty wild. So yeah, like most experiences are pretty expensive, but the question is why? Uh, if you run a sailing experience, the average price of a sailing experience is $80. Well, why is it $80? It's $80 because if two people book versus 10, that host wants to make at least, you know, like 30 bucks an hour or 40 bucks an hour. So they have to charge $80. But if 10 people booked, well, they don't need to charge $80. Only, like, they only really need to make $100, $200. Bucks. The yield deficiency of all these experiences, and, and restaurants are the same case. You know, Most people think that restaurants make or break on you know, filling happy hour spots at 7 p.m. or you know, at 9 p.m. Uh, or 4 p.m. or 9 p.m. Uh, that's not the, not the case at all. Restaurants make or break on Friday night at 7 o'clock when they have three no-shows. Uh, Restaurants are about turning tables three times in a night and figuring out how to optimize that. If you can solve some of these yield inefficiencies, uh, which experiences run 90% yield-efficient, restaurants run close to 40% yield-efficient, you can really upend a lot of the economics that work. As an example, right at February of 2020, right when we were really scaling and, and things were working, um, we had a subscription product. that was it was like 30 bucks a month, and for anything you did, meal, activity, anything like that, we could get you 10% off all of those things. So you'd make you'd recoup the money in you know one day, and we still had positive economics of close to 40% on a unit basis. Uh, it's a real business. It's a real opportunity. It's a hard-earned one, uh, and and one that many people have tried and many people have failed. Um, but I, I think it's still maybe. Maybe this stuff with AI simplifying the contribution costs that you need from an operation side. There's yeah. a real business there for sure. So I,
0: I'm hearing you say there are two different opportunities. The first one is this mystery date. And the way that it works is it's not that you book people individually at restaurants individually for a salsa class. It's that you book up a significant portion, if not all of the salsa class or all of the sailing class, and then you kind of break it up and you're selling it to people. Uh, as part of your package and the same thing happens with restaurants it seems like you're you're locking in a restaurant for multiple people maybe on a night that's not a big popular night for them and that's the that's why you keep calling it a marketplace in my mind it seemed like a concierge service or service business you're calling it a marketplace because you're aggregating a collection of experiences and then you're breaking them up and selling them uh to people okay so that's that's a business And then the other business that you still think
1: possibly is there is, is, um, what was the second one? Uh, I think they're one and the same. So what what I just said, packaging those things up, you can at the same time package up the supply side and sell personalized experiences on the other side. Because of what I mentioned before, you like a lot more than you think you do. And experiences at a certain level of quality are a commodity. Okay.
0: And I, I also hear what you're saying about Hunt a Killer. You're, they're actually pretty pricey. I thought it would be a, a pretty inexpensive box, kind of like these other subscription boxes. But essentially what they're sending you is like a board game every month. Mm-hmm. And yeah. But you're saying, look, a board game is still all paper that they personally are making up. They're not paying more than, I don't know what, five bucks or so, but the intellectual
1: totally. property mm-hmm. in there is. Uh, I mean, they're looking at an 80% margin business that... I wouldn't be surprised if they're well over $100 million in, in uh, recurring
0: revenue. It's a pretty interesting business. The more I look at it, the more I, I get why you're excited about it. What did you see when you looked out at these other events? You mentioned, look, all these other team building experiences just kind of suck. What did you see that sucked about the wine tastings and about the home cooking and all that?
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, we joined ones early on. Number one, it was a new category, a new venue. And I think when you think about experience quality and the host's ability to provide a, provide a quality experience, it comes down to like practice and doing it for a long time. A lot of these hosts that were doing these wine tasting classes have been sommeliers at restaurants, and they're great in a restaurant. They'll come up to you and be like, oh, my God, Andrew, like, I heard you like red wine. I've got one in the back that I think you should have a sip of. You'd really, really love it. They, they know how that interaction works. Meanwhile, you get, you know, these pain sip classes on virtual that are virtual and they all started with something like, you know, in normal times, we'd be in my studio. But these are challenging times. And I just want to take a minute and say to everybody that, like, we're grateful that we're all spending this time together. It's like nobody wants to join that shit. Uh, and, And, you know, it was as basic as, you know, peeling away all these layers that we had learned from this Date Night Out product. Like, what were the things that really made it amazing? And hospitality integration, it's something we called, uh, it's actually a Danny Meyer, who's like one of the best res- restaurateurs in the world, came up with this idea. It's the idea that like when you come in, there's some level of personal touch. Think about the best, re- your favorite restaurants that you love because you're local. What do you love about it? What well, you love that you get to walk in? They're like, Andrew, what's going on, man? Like, hey, same thing. That feeling is something you can actually replicate in many ways. So for like a, you know, maybe one of our classes on how to make coffee at home with a, with a professional barista. That class doesn't all open with like, all right, everybody, let's make some coffee. It starts with like, we won't even offer that event to a team unless we know who the coffee snob on the team is. There's always one person who's the coffee snob on a team. And our event will start with like, all right, so everyone seems to think Dale, Dale's the coffee guy. All right, Dale, open your box in front of me. How do you make a French press? What do you do? And, you know, there's there's that level of just bringing, pulling people in, understanding how you can integrate the right level of personalization from a hospitality perspective. Um, We looked at it and said, like, yeah, most of these events are very, very bad. And there hasn't been a lot of thoughtfulness around experience design on how to make these things really impactful.
0: I want to go back and, and understand how you got here. I mentioned that when I looked at your LinkedIn profile, you talked about the shitty websites you built for law firms, bakeries. That was the first business you started, Seattle Web Pros?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, website uh website design agency. Uh, I did all sorts of stuff in college to try and pay for pay for school, like everything what? from What are some of the businesses? Uh, one was a uh Flare Copters, so these little plastic toys that go up in the air and spin down real slow with light. Have you ever seen those? I've um, seen those.
0: Yeah, usually when you go out to touristy cities. There's a guy standing in the square throwing yeah. those up, like or spinning those up. And then if you're a kid, you can't stop
1: looking at it. And if you're a free parent, it's a pretty inexpensive thing to buy. That Paid for most of my college. Um, really? So like, Where did you yeah. stand and do that? Uh, I would do it in Seattle on the uh, parks. I would go down to Vegas and do it on the Vegas Strip. I would do it in uh, you know anywhere on the coast. Any of these events, you can just go and you, know, you buy these things for a cent or two on Alibaba. Uh, Literally a penny for those Ooh. things. <sighs> Two pennies for the for the right quality one. Two pennies. And you'd what? sell for five bucks. Uh, you I'd be able to make as like a 17, 18 year old, I was making two, three grand a night just selling these flare copters on the side of the street. I will say, street selling toys is a good humbling experience for anybody. <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> you know, it, it just takes quite a bit to get out there, be street selling toys, and then run into one of your friends and be like, What are you doing right now? <laughs> like Ah, One for ten, three for one for five, three for ten, you know, you'd have to really get like animated to do well. Uh, It was a good lesson in sales for the start, but everything from that, uh, you know, doing these like shitty websites, I, you know, quickly learned that, you know, building a website with a WordPress template and, you know, applying the very poor coding knowledge that I had at the time, I could build websites pretty quickly uh, well, let me so pause I,
0: on. Let me come back to those to those things that would spin up in the air. What are some of the sales techniques that worked for you back then? I love little sales tips.
1: Ooh, I think I first learned personalization in the right way. So like being able to uh, being able to manage a message to the person you're talking to. So if you you know you have some grandparents walking by, you know, you can make them all about like, hey, I'm sure you got grandkids. Like your grandkid is gonna love this or something like cheesy like yeah, that. Yeah, Versus yeah. if. If I had parents with young kids, you know, I'd, I'd say, help pay for a college education. <laughs> Something along those <laughs> lines, right? Like, you could start making it a little bit entrepreneurial, make it more about the personal side of things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can do all sorts of stuff, getting everyone in the park to all send it up all at once. And all of a sudden, a bunch of people run over. Uh, I mean, I could go through countless and countless. I spend too many hours of my life street selling these toys, um, which is funny because these toys are just like the worst quality. The, the amount of people that co- would come up and be like, mine broke after like a minute would be like oh well here's a new one <laughs> like they're no, like i don't three. have to pay for it it's like no this costs two two cents like i'm fine
0: <laughs> were you the type of kid who used to read sales books and business books in school and get excited about being able to do things like that on a higher level
1: ah uh, you that's know not not really ever too much back then into kind of the the you know academic side of business that that that's come later in life back then it was just you know i i always knew i wanted to start something and uh I was never any good at any of the academic things, so it was like, well, let's go and try anything else that's not in that category, uh, and just found you know small success with with small stuff early on. Everything from that to landscaping businesses to power washing to websites to street selling toys to selling blenders on eBay. Like I can go through all these ridiculous stories all the way through. I just always found ways. You know, in early college, I, I kind of broke myself working too many. You know, really terrible paying jobs. I was working like three jobs, like as a track and field manager, as a waiter, as like all this stuff. And I'd finish the week exhausted and be like, I barely made any money at all. It was like, this isn't going to keep working. I'm going to have to do something else if I need to find a way to get out of this debt. And so that's kind of what led me on the track of starting all these other things.
0: The websites, um, I'm guessing you weren't making that much money with them, right? There aren't a lot of Ah. law firms. Uh, Were you?
1: You'd be surprised. Yeah, you can build a website in, you know, five, ten hours if you really get good at the templatized stuff. And you can sell these websites for, back then, I don't know what you could do today, but back then I was literally just cold calling. I was walking into stores. I was looking at websites. And I was in Spokane, Washington, and I would literally just look up these websites for all these, you know, local businesses. And I would just come in and offer the owner to make them a new website. Sometimes in the beginning I would just make it and bring it to them and be like, hey, this costs you $2,500. And then I worked my way up, and you can make ten grand for five hours of work, which is really, really, really good for a you know a college kid back then. Um, you know, a lot really of the good. salesmanship, being able to go and actually bring the deals in. But um, yeah, all sorts of wild stuff.
0: The cold calling part is surprising. I would have thought you'd buy some ads, you'd SEO, but no, just walking into a law firm. Oh, yeah. and you'd know who to talk to. They would get you to the right person.
1: Yeah, you know, you just got to be friendly and be willing to do it. I I I can't believe the apprehension of people to pick up the phone and call these days. Uh, you know, I had, that was actually my first real job, uh, you know, outside of these random things was working at a place. It was working at a tech startup called Convoy in Seattle, and um, which is a, a freight marketplace, and my job every day was just a cold call. All I did was pick up the phone and call truck drivers and ask them to download an app for the very first time in their life. I have I have probably helped people download the first app of their life more than anybody on earth at this point. I'm like fully convinced of it. Um, but like the reality for any business, anyone just getting started, anything at all, like you can just pick up the phone and call. You can just walk into a business and talk to somebody, you know, or you can, you know, spend a hundred hours optimizing your digital marketing ad for your, your product that you don't understand or know what's going to, what it's going to do. The best way is just go talk to people. And like, I, yeah, it's it's funny how, how, many, how many hours people will waste and spend on the perfect website, the perfect all this stuff. You, you just go talk to people.
0: I find that there are certain industries where people do pick up the phone. Like I think in tech, if I were trying to find your phone number, it would be really hard. And you may Ooh. not even pick up the phone if you don't recognize the number. But law firms, they pick up the phone and they expect it. I just talked to my law firm earlier today. I was shocked that I could just get to a person and... Uh, and do things on the phone. Um, so I, I hear what you're saying. And then I think that there's something about sales that way where you have to like gut get your guts up, have a conversation, be cheerful regardless of what happened in the last call, care about this person, even though they may completely reject you. It's like a whole personal growth experience wrapped up in each one of these phone calls.
1: Yeah, I mean, just getting yourself to laugh before you hop on the phone call is the easiest hack in the world. <laughs> you know, everyone is that wants to talk what you do. To That's what I used to do. Yeah. Now now I, you know rejection is just another hour of every minute of every day. So it's totally fine. But back then I'd I'd laugh a little bit before the call. I'd go through all those all those little small tricks that you try and learn to get comfortable with something. At the end of the day, you just have to get comfortable with it. You gotta you gotta do it enough times that it it feels fine. And it's like The best superpower in the world is you can literally just call someone and like that's a competitive advantage in today's market. Not a very hard competitive advantage to go and build. Everybody can do that. um, And no one does.
0: All right. um, I want to talk about my second sponsor. It's uh, Origami. Origami helps businesses, well, actually it's businesses, communities, anyone form a decentralized autonomous organization. I was just talking with someone from Cougar Dow. Get this, Shane. A group of people, they decided they were going to get together and buy an island, Cougar Island. They looked at it, and it turns out that the price was just too expensive for what they wanted to pay. In fact, they just thought it was just too expensive in general. So they said, let's start smaller. They pooled their money together in a Dow, and they looked around, and they found a freaking farm. And they decided, you know what? You got a tenant on the farm. You see where the person's making money. It makes sense as a long-term business. Let's do it. They bought a freaking farm, and it's like a group of people all egging each other on, and then they put the title up. Obviously, they blanked out things that were private, and now they've got a, a farm with a tenant who's happy to, to pay them, and it's it's a nice business that they all got together to form, uh, and then, of course, they they improved it. They started adding an Airbnb. They celebrated when they became an Airbnb superhost. Anyway, I've got tons of these stories. No I'm going to see if I can interview them. Um, and all of these stories are available at a podcast I do about how these groups of people are getting together and doing business together and organizing and supporting each other and so on. And if you're interested in this, go to joinorigami.com slash podcast. Joinorigami.com slash podcast to catch up on that. You mentioned that you got Amazon. How did you get Amazon? How did you get these businesses to sign up and work with you?
1: Yeah. You know, in the early days, I think I think it was mostly just because we had, we had had tens of thousands of people that had been on those date nights out. We had an email list serve. All these people happened to work at Amazon, happened to work at Microsoft. So when we sent the email that said, hey, we're doing virtual events now, people knew that we were good at experiences. They were like, hey, this company is at least really good at IRL stuff. Like, look, we should try them out virtually. I think that's how we sparked it in the beginning. You know, I think that one of the, the what. The, you know, going through a startup journey, you start learning the you know the wisdom in all these old adages. Um, you know, there's knowledge. There's you know, I I I know that because it makes sense. And one of those is like it's not timing the market; it's time in market is something that you've heard likely before. And like I can read that and know it and be like, yeah, that makes sense. Or I can live it and feel like, wow, every time we pivoted the business, it's been a little bit easier. Is it, well, it's because like people know about us, and we already have a, brand, a small brand reputation with people that like us. well, that's one factor of you know being time in market. It's just we launched, and we already had a bunch of people that loved what we did. Uh, and so when we launched, like people wanted to try it out at the very minimum. Um, and so that now I have wisdom of what that means. and that I could go into a long spiel about the difference of knowledge and wisdom and how. All good advice has to be learned by doing no matter how much you want to learn it in a book it's not you it, the only help of learning in the book is that so you can recognize it when it happens that's about it uh you have to learn these things the hard way you
0: Now I admire people who who learn and teach uh coding because programming is all about use immediately what you've learned And I wish that business books could have a way to do that, to learn the thing and then go and use it. And don't give me a question at the end of the chapter that I have to fill out. It's not the same as learn, do, come back and and think about it and frankly do it again and again. Um, The problem that I've had when I've had time in market and come up with products that are different is that people think of you in one way and when you add something different – they get confused. They don't know why you're doing this. What does this mean? And the fact that you've had some impression on them kind of works against you. Did you find that?
1: Yeah, I, I think definitely to a certain degree. I mean, we still get people that are coming almost every week that say, hey, when are you going to bring that date night product back? Because like, dude, that was three years ago. <laughs> like it's, right. it's been a minute. Uh, so certainly, you know, making the change is hard. Making that transition is difficult. I think the one thing that we've done all the way through uh, has been, you know, while yes, they are different, the root is always the same. The thing that we're really good at you know, is what we're doing today, how different is it than what we were doing back then? And certainly, at its face value, it's very different, right? It's HR technology versus a, you know, a, a night out platform. It's very, very different. But at its root, we're matching people to experiences that we know how to facilitate that we think will bring them together and make them happy. The same, that sentence works for both, for every business along the way, uh, from the very, very early days, all the way through to what we're doing today, even as a platform business. And so I think as long as you have that, that root and people understand like the base of the value creation that you're bringing to the table, I think it's a little bit easier for them to make that jump. And obviously, you know, extension products, there's, there's a, more written on this topic than I can give. But I, I think that's what's worked for us is we've stayed true to what we started with with what we're good at. We've stayed true with knowing how to surf, right? We, we've, we're surfing the, we've surfing the same style all the way across all these business lines. We're just finding the best way to do it.
0: How are you finding customers now?
1: Where do uh, they come I, from? A lot of word of mouth, a lot of inbound, uh, and then we have a pretty, pretty traditional marketing team, sales team, uh, outbound sales team. Outbound meaning.
0: What's what does your outbound sales team look like? How does it work?
1: We have one SDR. We have uh, a marketing team that goes out and you know build build some leads, and then we have you know uh, three reps that are you know mid level senior reps that are able to both do some of that prospecting themselves and take the inbound leads that we bring to them.
0: What about changing the name to Glue? Has that made it more confusing?
1: Uh, that one, you know, to the early date night customers, I'm sure that's more confusing to to our current customers and, and folks that you know, have come along with us in the journey, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, we picked Glue because it's how companies were describing what we did for them. Uh, they would say things like, you guys are the Glue that keeps our team together. Uh, mystery didn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, when you're trying to, when you have a product that helps you understand your feeble problems and do something about it, the question is like, well, why is it called Mystery now? Um, and, and so Glue just fit for what customers were already saying what we did. Uh, and for the broader market now that we're trying to go after, it makes a hell of a lot more sense. People see it and they, they can kind of get it. They get the idea behind it pretty quickly when, when presented with the, the positioning that we bring.
0: No, it makes a ton of sense. And I love the domain glue.co. What would you pay for that?
1: Uh, that? What did we pay for that? I'd say in the uh, in the five figures. Uh, I won't say exactly how much, but not okay. nothing too ridiculous.
0: Worth it. All right. For everyone who's listening, the site is glue.co. Shane, it's so good to have you on here.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much, Andrew. really appreciate it.
0: Cool. And as a follow-up to this, remember if you, uh, as a follow-up to oh. this, uh, sorry, lost you. As a follow-up to this interview, go check out my other podcast where I interview creators and people who are building DAOs. Go to joinorigami.com slash podcast, joinorigami.com slash podcast. Shane, thanks. Bye everyone.